This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, hoping not to go back to school, at least not the way that some in our industry will be over the next couple of years. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? I am great, Captain. How are you? I'm, ex- mate, I'm very, very well in general. I'm also, I said to you before we started recording, mate, I actually look forward to these chats every single week. I hope our listeners enjoy them as much as I do. Um, it's just a really kind of fun time to, in some sort of structured way, chat about investing and markets and business, and I, I, I just thoroughly enjoy it. So, mate, thank you for spending your time with me and uh, and with our listeners, of course. Um, it's a it's a fun thing for me to do, and I'm sure our listeners get a lot out of it, mate. So, um, thank you for, for being mate, part of it. Mate, I'm going to complain. You, you did mention... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what about the tangents? I thought those are the greatest part of the day. <laughs> he says creating a tangent in and of itself. That's very meta, mate. I like it. A tangent about tangents. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I could possibly go on a tangent about the derivation of the word tangent, and that would really, really screw with stuff. But I, I won't. I'll, I'll, um, I think you're right. The tangents are always fun, mate. And that's kind of that's part tangents. of the fun, I think. It's part mm-hmm. of what our, our listeners enjoy. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do what we can and see how we go. Um, I am mindful that a couple of our listeners, a couple of our reviewers, for, mate, see, you won't believe this. A couple of our viewers didn't give us five stars, which I know shocks me as much as it shocks you. Apparently, we waffle too much. Now, I've got to say, I'm not sure whether we, you know, I'm sure it is probably too much for some people. Other people probably enjoy the banter, I hope. So I'm not sure which way to go. That's the problem with the reviews, right? Everyone's got an opinion. I'm not sure which way to go. So he says waffling and, and uh, bantering. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to, I think we'll just keep doing what we're doing. If you do have a view on our banter, our waffle, please let us know on the socials, which I'll give out later. Let us know because we are here for you guys. Um, we're not going to please everybody all the time, right? Someone wants a 15 minute Just the Facts podcast. It's kind of not us, right? You can listen to some news podcasts for that stuff. We, we try and give it a colour, a bit of fun, and also, obviously, a lot of education and some insights. So we're trying to do all of that at the same time and make it interesting, make it entertaining. If you just want the facts, we're probably not the podcast for you. Uh, as our colleagues in the US say, this is stuff you're not going to hear on Bloomberg Radio. Um, that's probably a fair, a fair assumption, I reckon. So we'll keep going. But as I said, listeners, if you have a view, please feel free to, to let us know. Speaking of tangents, Doc, let's get back to the, the podcast itself. We've got a lot, mate. We've got a full docket today. We're going to talk about whether or not the crisis is finally over. And there are kind of two crises, right? There's the economic one and the health one. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the US Fed. So again, as we usually do, we're recording this on a Thursday, the 11th of June. Overnight, our time, uh, Jerome Powell has, well, made some predictions and we'll go into those. NAB bankers, God love them. They're going back to school, mate. And, and they're probably... Not before time. Um, to be fair, I think the rest of the industry probably needs to do the same thing. You're going to make me talk about the the property market, aren't you? I love the property market. Oh, and then we're going to talk about the dinosaur that roars. Stan, stay tuned to hear about who that is. No, it's not me. Uh, but the dinosaur that roars after Bay hits new highs. And, of course, we are going to dip into the full mailbag. That's a full docker, mate. Should we just keep going? Let's do it. It's, it's, it's a big one. We've got a big one. Unlike some days, we don't have a big one, but today we have a big one. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of news. There's a lot of news today. Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let's start with the big, well, I don't know if it's ever the big headline. It's certainly the big kind of trend. We have now had seven positive days in a row for the ASX. So up to close of business Wednesday, the 10th of June, seven straight positive days of performance. The longest winning streak at least since March, I want to say even longer now. It's been, it's, you know, it's, I guess some February was probably pretty good. So it's probably not the best this year, but it's not far off, mate. There is a lot of optimism returning to the market. We even managed yesterday to shake off, as they say in the jargon, a weak lead from Wall Street, which basically means the US is down and we tend to follow their lead. We didn't. There is a lot going on. You know, to some degree, it begs the question, right? And we've asked this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. In the first instance, New Zealand now coronavirus free. In New South Wales, we've had 14 days without community transmission as of yesterday. Now, I haven't seen the numbers this morning, and clearly by the time people listen to this on Friday, things might have changed. Um, WASA, Northern Territory, having a fantastic run. I I mean, I don't... Is it too early to say the worst has passed? Is it too early to look forward and say, you know, things are now going to improve? Where do you feel like we're at health-wise? Well, neither of us are medical doctors. You are a doctor, but not, not one of those ones. Um, you know, how, how do you feel like we are health-wise, public policy, public position-wise? And is the market right to be so positive for almost a week and a half? 
Oh, wait. That's a lot of questions you asked. Okay, so number one, I'm <laughs> going to hold, hold you responsible if the market goes down today because you have jinxed it <laughs> by, uh, by saying it's been up seven days. I actually did fair, not realize. Fair. Did not realize it's up actually seven days in a row. Um, it's it, it high. You, you know, like I've seen like some big moves, but I didn't realize that we've had seven yeah. up days. So that, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so where's the market? So, so there's two things, right? One, I think, was the immediate reaction. I think we, we debated this yesterday, actually. Like one of the things that yeah. I think happened is there was a there was a lot of panic, and there's a lot of there were a lot of unknowns at the beginning, right? Mm. And unknowns are stuff that markets absolutely detest, which yeah, makes right. sense. Like there's a, there's a lot of you know we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long it's going to be closed. Mm. We don't know you know well, how many people are going to die. We don't know how many people are going to die next year. We don't know what the next wave is, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. We don't know. List was so long. It looks to me, at least, uh, my my outside of view based on whatever I see in the news and what I hear and what I read, is a lot of those unknowns have disappeared. Right, and if the unknowns have disappeared, the markets like that. Right, that's number one. Um, have they disappeared globally, mate, or just locally? I mean, the US is still having a thousand deaths a day. Are we a little bit guilty of looking only at Australia? Not you and I, but the market guilty of looking only at Australia, overemphasizing the Australian experience, or do you think there is a general global kind of improvement and a, and a kind of you know a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, yes. Okay, so. Without taking away anything from Australia and New Zealand, one of the things I want to point out is I think, you know, I think it's easy to, I think contextualization is very important, right? So the countries with some of the best experience for uh, COVID-19 are island nations, right? So if you look at Japan, if you look at South Korea, it's not really an island nation, right? But it is an island nation if you think of the fact that its northern border is North Korea and can be sealed. Um, If if you look at New Zealand, if you look at Australia, uh, these are all island nations. So I think island nations have an advantage. What people need to realize is uh, you could lock them up very easily, and that gives you an advantage. Uh, So so that's number one I want to point out. Number two is... um, um, what I think, yes, there are a huge number of deaths. Here's the other thing. Here's the other way to think about it that I think is not talked about. It is, and I hold news media um, and other media to you know um, um, responsible to some extent. It is fascinating to write about deaths, right? X number of deaths every year. What I'd like to know is how many deaths were there last year at this point in time, right? You know, and. What were the causes of the deaths, right? So, I mean, yes, thousands are bad, um, but I think what is more important is are there surges? I think, in my view, the most important thing is are there surges happening that the hospitals are not able to cope with? That is the most important thing, right. in my view. The other thing that's that's very different now versus, say, you know, a couple of months back is, you know, are do you have PPE? Do you, you know, so you know, personal protective gear for the hospital people? Mm-hmm. Do you have the various therapeutic treatments that have been become available? Whether it's malaria, you, malaria drug that you don't. Believe Live in, or whether it's the uh, you know the remdesivir, uh, the what's uh, that's the, the retroviral that's used for HIV, all mm. of those things are now available that were not available or unknown at the early stages of the crisis. So I think that really helps, right. and I think that is a global phenomenon, which is why the you know the economy in various parts of the world are opening. So I, I don't think, you know, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back because, uh, mm. yes, we had a good response, but that, you know, I, I, I also, I'm very careful about um, giving over credit for stuff <laughs> that, because, you know, there, there's a correlation, there's a causation factor. There are of all course, these yeah. other factors that we need to understand, right? So it's easy to say. Hey, it's and we have another counterfactual, right? So we yeah, don't know what would have happened had, had the response been different. So you can never actually say exactly. this caused that or if we hadn't done this, this might have happened. Exactly. There's a massive range of potential other, other outcomes we'll never know the answer to. Exactly. exactly. And the other thing is that, you know, there are all these models that have predicted X number of deaths, right? But the models could, right, right. Know, the models are models, right? The models are used, the models are all, as, as they say in, ma- in mathematics, you know, all models are wrong. Only some models are useful. So, yes, the models are wrong <laughs> and the models have been yeah. useful to guide a, a an action which has been useful, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we could have said, oh, we saved these many deaths because we don't know how many deaths correct, there would correct. be. So, I think that's very important correct. to keep in mind. So, I think I feel over, you know, overall, whatever it is, you know, what whatever your view is, I think I feel good about um, 
future prospects. I feel good about the fact that businesses are going to be opening. I feel good about the fact that um, the economy, you know, and when I say economy, I mean global economy is not going to be in despair as much I had feared in the beginning, right? So, yeah, right. And, and maybe a lot of people feel that way, which is what explains sort of, you know, maybe the market's reaction, right? I mean, it's, it's all a relative mm. thing right now. Is it mm. bad? Yes. You know, negative growth is bad. Recession is bad, right? But it's not as bad as people thought it was going to be. So if, it, if, it's, right, if that's right. the case, well, that's a positive. Um, and then and then you can write this off as a one-off event um, and then you move forward. So you basically, you know, you say that 2020 or 20 or part of 2021 is a write-off, but what do we have going forward? Um, so I, I feel good about that. And I think... Um, yeah, like so. So I think I, I think those those are things. There are m- many things I'm watching, but that's that's a different conversation. Um, yeah, but overall, I, I think you know the market is right to be bouncing back because it's it's looking at you know it's looking forward and it's looking forward and saying, well, it's not as bad as we thought. Now, mate, I'm a long term optimist, right? So I don't really I say I don't really care what happens in the short term. I actually mean that financially. Of course, I care if people are um, out of work. I care if people you know are worried about their finances because their portfolio is volatile. I get that. And I do. I do feel that absolutely. But I don't. I don't really care what happens in the next three months as an investor, right? I'm going to invest for hopefully the rest of my life, and hopefully that's decades. What happens between now and September or, or December is almost certainly going to be irrelevant to my long term returns. So that's my starting point. So I don't really care what happens next. As a as a as a somewhat contrarian minded investor by nature, though, I'm always happiest. Like as an optimist, I'm really happy when people are pessimistic, right? <laughs> I, I, I was I was more than happy and more than confident during the pandemic to say to people, keep investing, keep investing, keep investing. I know it's terrible right now. The the future is bright. Things will get back to to, to good. You know, I couldn't promise it because again, uh, a it would be disingenuous to promise anything, and b ASIC would take a very dim view. So I don't do that. But I, but I was very happy to be optimistic when others are pessimistic. Oh, that's my happy place, right? Which is bizarre in itself. I do worry, though, I have to say, for investors, not for the market, not for my returns, because I'm a long-termer, when everyone's saying, oh, seven days of positive gains, the worst is over, we're okay, things are good, things are back to normal, let's get on with it, hey, everything's great. That's the time I feel a little bit like I want to shout from the rooftops, okay, but that means we're now... The risk reward in the short term is, is kind of pitching the other way for mine. And you know, if we have a second outbreak, if we have a slower than expected recovery, if we have a second echo of unemployment because people get back to work, but the job keeper goes away and, and tough businesses do struggle, and then we have this kind of second dip, not necessarily a double dip recession, but you know, just this second kind of, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I guess I wanted to just say to our listeners as they hear this invest anyway, invest for the long term is absolutely my advice. But also be mindful that when everyone thinks that you know when everyone's thinking the same way everyone thinks the problem is solved and, and the, the problems are over that's probably the time for a negative surprise because it's not being priced it's not kind of being looked for or assumed and that's kind of how i feel a bit now not that i again i'm happily investing i'll happily buy more shares probably this week maybe next um but i also want our listeners to kind of have that in the back of their minds we could still see another downtrend or downswing before we're truly through this your thoughts yeah, so I agree. I agree with all of that. I mean, um, so yeah. So when I'm sounding positive, I'm sounding positive on the long term. As, as I said, I think there are a number of things to watch. Right. So it's uh, actually, if I have to be worried about something, I am worried about the bounce back in mm. things that have actually not bounced back, and uh, things that I don't okay. think are going to bounce back. Right. So that's you know. So I don't think, for example, travel is going to bounce back to normalcy anytime soon. So therefore, you mm. can't expect, you know, so the bounce in, say, travel stocks, for example, surprises me. Um, I have mm. seen uh, over in the States, actually, this is really funny, um, um, because uh, what hurts, I think, one of, the, one, of the, one of the car rental companies has basically filed for bankruptcy protection. Right. Right? And the shares have gone from, like, you know, some low number to some very high number. You know, they've gone up from some low point. But, you know, but companies filed for buying bankruptcy protection. Why are the shares going up, you know? So I think those... <laughs> those are... Which is the US laws are a little bit different to here, right? You actually can restructure and shareholders can sure. retain some of their investment here. Once you're in administration, the game's pretty much over for shareholders. I don't want to... I'm, yeah. I'm only saying that because I'm mindful people who watched Virgin at 8 cents and hope that things might turn around and be restructured they're not going to get anything for their money. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Just absolutely. Absolutely. As, we, as we're going. Yeah, so that's, that's a really, that's an important technical point. But, but you, you know, uh, like, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that, yes, they can make some money, but 
it's not as if, you know, this is a business in trouble, right? If a business is in trouble yeah. and it's going through restructuring, yes, it can come out, you know, but there's a lot of optimism baked in if, you you know, things like that, you know, bounce. The, the, as, you, as you said, the things that I'm really, okay, right now I'm really concerned about a couple of big drivers. I'm really concerned about tourism overall. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm concerned about tourism is we had about, about 10 million tourists visit, I think, last year, some, somewhere in that ballpark, right? 10 million Mm -hmm. in a population of 25 million is a substantial number right and um, so so by virtue of comparison right I mean you might think I think scale so here's the here's the thing that I want I, I want our listeners to understand it's a little bit of a funny uh, funny magic thing but you know you hold with me there's there's some some fact here um, or something interesting here 10 million out of 25 million is actually a substantial number right so you if if 10 million addition of tourists for a 25 million population is a substantial lift so that's basically like an operating leverage in a, in a company right a, you have a, you have a cost base but you if you add all that extra surplus right, going through, right. you get a huge lift, right? right? Uh, by virtue of comparison, if you say compare with the states, uh, states with a population of 320 million had about, what, 80 million visitors, substantially less as a percentage of population, right? So mm-hmm. taking away 10 million people of tourists versus taking away 80 million have different impacts on different economies, right? And 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 I, I think what the, the thing is that a smaller sized economy in terms of, say, number of people, for example, is... Mm. It it has that leverage built in, which works it to the upside and to the downside, right? And so the reason I'm pointing this out is the longer, for example, the borders are closed, it has an impact which flows on to the economy for longer periods of time, right? Right. Which which is going to yeah, impact yeah. Australia differently compared to say you know Germany, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's just the sheer scale um, imp- impact, right? So you, know, you you get upside advantages, but you get downside advantage, you know disadvantages as well. So I mean there are things like this that I'm concerned about, and I'm concerned about. Uh, whether or not a you know vaccination, it seems like in you know, almost all international travel right now is being made tied to a vaccination. So I'm concerned about you know whether or not a vaccination is going to be available on time, right? And then the flow on you know, and then I'm concerned with the fact that you know if immigration dries down, um, then what happens, right? Because yeah, that's a big driver. Again, in immigration in a small country has a big driver largely because you get the operating leverage like you get in companies, right? So. So those are things that I'm, I'm watching right now. And then because of, uh, the flow on for that would be into other things like property, construction, various jobs, you know, even if it's in a retail sector and, and so on and so forth, right? So mm-hmm. those are things that of interest. Again, I'm more pop- optimistic. Nice. I like that. Mate. I, I think that's 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 interesting. I, look, from, and from an investing perspective, I think I would say I'm sure you would agree that the long term is, is still, you know, past this. We will remember coronavirus. Of course, we will. But in 2030, the chance that the next three months has a meaningful impact on your investment horizon is, is pretty minimal. I mean, you can you can do some stupid things. Anyone can do stupid things. I can do stupid things in the next three months. But at, at an index level, certainly at a, at a quality company level, um, again, the business that make it through this will continue to, well, the quality businesses that make it through this will continue to thrive. Mate, let's let's turn our attention to the US. Um, it's kind of kind of the same kind of part of, part of the conversation, really. But just an extra data point. Maybe we don't spend too long on this, but. Jerome Powell, the U.S. Fed chair overnight, said he sees rates staying near zero through 2022, so two years from now, effectively. I mean, we can argue about 18 months, two years, but, you know, that sort of thing. He also reckons GDP growth is going to be back to 5% next year. They are um, courageous numbers. <laughs> I, I don't know if they're good or bad. I don't know if they're likely or unlikely. They are big, big calls, right? I mean, there's something about both of those numbers. I mean, realistically... If you had, in any point, last 80 years, said to an economist, we will have 5% growth in the economy and 0% interest rates. <laughs> I mean, you, you could you could have written your own ticket for the odds. If someone had offered you those odds, I, I would have I would have offered someone, I would have, made, I would have lost a fortune, I would have offered someone a thousand to one on that. If you just said to me in 1984, yeah. hey, how, what odds would you give me that at some point in the next 30, 40 years, there's a 0% interest rate and a 5% economic growth? Like, no, it can't, it doesn't work. That's not how mm-hmm. these things happen. And yet... That's where we're at. Your take? Well, you know, I'll make it quick. Like, I mean, the the 5% next year, which is like 2021, I think he's talking about, is basically going to be on the back of what, minus 6% this year, right? Or minus (laughs) 6%. So it's effectively not that much. Like, I mean, if you average it out, it's probably not that much. It's like 2%, right? Um, (laughs) So, in fact, I'll take the odds. I'll say that he is underballing by saying that, you know, 0% interest rates until 2022. As I said, I think we are going to be looking at low interest rates until like 2025. That's my guess. Yeah. Um, 
It is just low. Is fin- different for no increase though. Are you saying no increase till twenty twenty five or just very low over that? Period? I'm just saying very low. Like I mean, yeah, he might increase okay. it by like you know, it's like zero right now, right? Like if yes, it, exactly. You yeah. know, like it's probably going to be like you know, no more than one percent or something like that in like twenty twenty. Like I mean. In history, we have not seen this kind of low interest rates in a long, long time, right? <laughs> this, this is, you know, this changes a lot of things. So, I think that, that, yeah, I think, and it's going to be the same, I think, everywhere. Or, or when I say everywhere, I mean most of the developed economies. I certainly mm-hmm. think our interest rates are going to be similar, right? You know, we are not yeah. not quite at zero, but you know, we can call it effectively zero. Um, see it from here, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, whether it's point two five or like, you know, it's like effectively zero. Um, yeah. yeah, so. I mean, that's what it is. And Are there implica- implications of that, mate? I mean, you, I mean, the GDP numbers are a fair point, right? Okay, even if it's 5% growth over 6% decline, they're still down versus 2019. Yeah, so like, we I call mean, that a wash. I mean, that's kind yeah. of that. I, I, look, I don't want to spend too long on this, mate, because we can, we can kind of get a bit wonky sometimes and maybe, I don't know if this is like it or not. Again, tell us on the socials. We'll give you those details later. Um, I, I said to you guys yesterday in our team meeting, it worries me a little bit. Look, after the GFC, everyone said, oh, in the next crisis, we've got no ammunition left. We've used it all. Debt's up, rates are down, we've got nothing left. We've used QE. And kind of, I had some sympathy for that view, but I, I expected we would be okay. Like, you know, things would improve. Maybe I'm just being Pollyanna, but, you know, I, I figured we'd, we'd get things sorted. What worries me is when we go into this pandemic, we weren't sorted by that point. Debt hadn't been paid down. Uh, interest hadn't got back to any sort of reasonable normal or at least historical normal. If we have another economic crisis at this point, at, from this point, I have no idea how central bankers and governments respond to it. I don't know how, when we've got $200 billion worth of debt as a result of this one, and I think rightly, by the way, I'm a big fan of what the government have done. I, I'm, not polit- I'm not political. I've given them much grief on a whole lot of topics. On this one, I think they got it right. Um, so I'm a fan of what they've done, but we've got $200 million, billion worth of debt. We've got rates at 0.25%. If we have a crisis in 2023, I, I don't know what they do. That, that's the thing that worries me a little bit. Do you share that concern or am I, um, am I too worried? You know, like, here's the thing. Like, I actually dissociate, you know, what the government does So versus what, you know, here's the thing, right? In 2008, so I'll take, I'll t- so the, I think the government, I agree with you that what the governments actually worldwide did and the, the, the speed of action um, yeah, yeah. was really meaningful. And actually, I think it is a net positive everywhere. You know, whether okay. you agree yep. on, you know, you, it's not about politics. I'm just saying the net positive of that is is tremendous in various levels, unquestionably. but yep. unquestionably. And what I think, though, is interesting is that here's the thing, right? We could say that things have not been different, but I'm, I'm going to let's for the time being separate government debt mm. from company debt. Mm. I don't know yep. of a time when and I'm, I'm specifically talking of, of uh, you know, some American companies here. I cannot think of a time when companies had this strong balance sheets. Right. Right. So something has happened right. Now, at the government level, it might not. But at the business level, you know, a company like Apple basically mm. could say, I am going to close my doors and I'll be fine. Right. Yeah. That That is, I think, a very interesting. So I think what has happened is, if I have to take a, a bigger view, I'd say that mm. a lot of responsibility of creating jobs, creating innovation shifted from the government sector mm. to the private sector. And the big tech companies, they have not been in a better shape ever in history. Right. And what I think, you know, if I have to say something, I would say that what this crisis has done is basically given them the opportunity to strengthen their boots even further because now they'll be able to raise money at unbelievable rates and do things like, you know, Amazon. Yeah, right, right. Didn't Amazon raise money at like, you know, at at rates like most governments would want to raise, right? So, like, so I think that is what has happened. I think it's a shift. Uh, from government-controlled policies to uh, private companies, actually. Now, whether you agree with it, it's a good thing or not, uh, mm. that's a different mm. debate. But I think businesses have never yes. been better off. Um, you know, some of the yeah. best businesses have never been better off, right? And therefore... What worries uh, me, though, mate, is that they're not the ones going... I mean, they, you know, Apple's not the one who is responsible, and rightly so, by the way, responsible for the kind of Keynesian stimulus push. You know, in, in bad times, if a government can't, Unless Apple feels genuinely, you know, <laughs> has some sort of gen- I don't make it Apple because you and I have different views on Apple, blah, blah, blah. Um, any, any big company, you know, Nuco X, right, whatever it is. Um, unless they feel genuinely, like, you know, kind of publicly minded to say, okay, well, we don't have to spend this money now, we're going to just to help the economy. What worries me is there's no kind of the automatic stabilizers that the econocrats talk about, the idea that when things get tough, you know, taxes go down, welfare spending goes up, stimulus goes out, that helps to rebalance the economy. It kind of worries me a little bit that 
Those companies aren't going to do that, and nor should they, by the way. I'm not for a second saying they're wrong to do it. It's not their job to kind of go and spend $10 billion to help the economy. That bit, kind of the, the inability of, of the economy to be stimulated is what concerns me. Yeah, well, I'm not that concerned because, you know, like I'll give a contrasting okay. example. I'll, uh, you know, Flight Center was firing people uh, and laying off people. Mm-hmm. Apple was saying, we'll just pay your salaries. You don't have to come to work, right? right. So I, I think... Um, great companies and great companies can actually do things much better than you know in a much more equitable fashion if they want to right and if these mm-hmm. companies uh, become stronger they basically feel like well you know they have a responsibility towards the people that they employ towards their customers that they mm-hmm. you know work with and it is I think it's not the norm but maybe that becomes the norm right all of these companies you know took, took on okay we're going to make this we're going to provide PPE we're mm-hmm. going to make these guards uh, they, there was that demonstration of very strong corporate um, support during this crisis from uh, some of the biggest companies, right? They all work together to do something which the governments were, you know, again, I, I, I think that is the difference that I've noticed is that between 2008 when the companies were in poor position versus now, um, you know, some companies are in excellent position, right? And, you know, whether you That's like it or, fair, yeah. yeah, whether you like it yeah, or not, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, it basically creates some winners and losers, you know, again, in a, in a free competitive market, I think it basically mm-hmm. creates some winners. It's, you know, I think the big tech is basically, or in general tech and, and companies with strong balance sheets are the winners out of I- this crisis because they've been in a position oh, to, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah. they've been in a position like no other um, have been in, the, in past crises, right? So they've not been basically mm-hmm. affected by the crisis to that extent. Interesting, mate. I like it. Let's move on. Um, I, I, I hope you're right. I, I, I don't, I'm concerned that uh, economically we may not get the stimulus that we would otherwise, you know, the, the real push, the, the job keepers type stimulus that the economy as a whole might need, but, but I hope I'm wrong. Um, NAB, God love them. They're sending 34,000 staff back to school to do Banking 101 over the next three years. Um, I'm... I'm actually, I won't, I won't editorialize yet. I've got a view. What do you reckon, mate? Is this, is this, is this kind of window dressing? Does it matter? Does it help? Uh, is, it, is it a brand building exercise rather than actually kind of, you know, rather than solving a problem, they're just trying to say, well, we're better than those guys because rather than genuinely fixing the, the problems that, that the bank has had that caused it and its compatriots to be absolutely shellacked at the Royal Commission? You know, I'm not a big fan of this. Uh, you know, the banks overall, right? You, you know, and that's not a not an. I've heard view. you've heard, right? Uh, <laughs> and some of the listeners, uh, I'm, I'm actually not a fan of any sort of old guard style business. But here's the here's the thing. I'm going to give NAB a lot of benefit of doubt here, and and basically okay. say, well, this is probably a good thing. You know, like trying to adapt, trying to learn, getting people in your business to learn is actually a good thing. Continuing education. So if <laughs> yep. done right. This might be good, and maybe you know, maybe it's late, but you know, and it's it's better to do it now than never. Um, so okay. I, I, I'm, you know, in my books, this is a tick for NAB. In fact, it's a tick okay, to the point where go. I might even consider banking with NAB. You know, how's that? Oh, no. look out! So, so that's a tick in my books. It's a tick in my books. Like you know, at least they're thinking about it. You know, that you yeah, think about doing the right things, and whether you know. It, how they execute, I don't know. That you know, we can have that that view. I'll have when they have executed, and we know whether this was good or not. But I'm going to give a tick for yeah. this one. It's very very rare, mate. That well, is it is it rare? Am I normally the cynic one, or are you normally the cynic one? I can't work out which. Um, I right, look. You know what? So I will. I will actually. I'll give them half a tick on your point, which is at least they're trying to do something. That's worth something, right? I said this before, so I'm not going to rant about it too much. When you have incentives that incentivize people to do things that are not aligned with the culture you're trying to create, and then you try and create that culture anyway, I wonder why it's not working. I don't see why they can't see it. If I'm a, if I if I genuinely want to change the culture at NAB, the first thing I do is change the incentives. If if they're incentivized on how many loans, how many yeah, how much cost cutting, uh, you know, how many accounts, how many financial wealth products, how many of this, how many of that, when you incentivize someone to do something, if I say to you, Doc, look, I'm going to give you hundred grand if you do X. And then I'm going to say, but I'd really rather you didn't do it if that's okay. You're going to say, well, I know Scott said I shouldn't do it and I kind of feel bad about doing it. I know I did that course that I shouldn't do it, but even, even subconsciously, even if not consciously, right, that subconscious idea of like, well, I can kind of subconsciously rationalize that activity. I can, I mean, I'm not going to deliberately go out and do something, but, but, I, but I guess it would make sense if I could do both, that'd be great. If I could be ethical and get some accounts, that'd be good. And then when push comes to shove and I want to get a number for my boss by the end of the month or the end of the year or, I mean... It, it just strikes me as, as bananas, mate, that none of the banks yet still 
uh, talking about incentives with the small exception of one of the banks, I think it might have been CBA, maybe more than one, did actually remove some of those sales incentives from the tellers. So the tellers, you know, who were paid to push other products, that did, that did go away. So full credit for that. But until you change the incentives, I don't know why they expect the behavior to change. It just, it strikes me that you can give people as much training as you want. If you don't change the incentives, you're not going to change the behavior, are you? Can, can, uh, this is going to be odd. Can I defend uh, Nav here? <laughs> oh, look out. <laughs> okay, so here's Jeez, my... Right, uh, do your best, do your best. Uh, <laughs> so here's my problem, right? Uh, the problem yep. with the incentive structure is you can't change, I, I think, you can't change the incentive structure of a bank to sell more loans, sell more products, mm. especially in an economy where, you know, it's really hard to get that growth. Like, I mean... It's not, see, like bank, bank, like I'm going to use my favorite example. NAB is not Apple, right? It can't make an Apple Watch. <laughs> it can only produce a loan. It could, it probably would be very good. <laughs> right, but it can only produce a loan. And there are only so many different yeah. varieties of a loan you can produce, right? You can either produce right. a fixed interest rate loan, you can produce like a no interest rate loan. Uh, there are only so many things that a bank can do. It provides an essential service with a very little growth, sort of, you know, very little growth environment. They got to push for it. Like I mean, either you nationalize the banks and say, "Well, we're you know we we're going to go to a non-profit <laughs> uh, model for banking," yeah. um, or you just have to live with the fact that well, that's the incentive. They got to push for loans. They got to give loans as much as they can. Well, you know that's what shareholders expect. So I, you know, I'm. I'm not really blame- acknowledging outright that this will happen again. Isn't if we if we accept that that's okay. Isn't that, isn't that literally just outright? I mean, because the thing is, in the past, it didn't happen, mate. You know, for, for decades, the, the local bank manager was literally the pillar of the community. Um, you know, it's the, the person who knew you personally, knew your business, knew your house, knew your income, knew your partner, knew your kids. It was very much, and this, I don't, I don't want to say too romanticized, but literally, you know, in small communities, that exactly was what happened. Now that that, that overarching incentive change, I, I take your point, there's only so much growth to get, but isn't, isn't the more important point to acknowledge that, pay an appropriate price as an investor for that, and kind of, you know, do decent business. I mean, take our business, right? We could, we could do some horrible, horrible, horrible things. You know, we we are we are we you know, we certainly have competitors. And I won't name them, who happily take different approaches to marketing, for example, and we pull our punches on some things. I sent an email to our boss. I won't I won't go into the details but, uh, on Tuesday. I said, hey, I've seen this email from a different party, not not us. I think I would be. I'd hate to think we would do something like that. And he came back and said, yep, absolutely, we'll never do it. We're not going to do that. Terrible idea. Now that's. You know, we're not, we're not we're not wider than wider. I'm not saying we're we're perfect. My point is, we we pull some punches deliberately to say, okay, let's let's push for growth, but let's not push so far as to lose who and what we are. Isn't that reasonable to expect of the banks in the same sort of way? Well, I think the problem really is that you know we're in a sector where, where there is potential for growth in different ways, and they're in a sector where there is not potential mm. for growth in different ways. I think that's the bottom. I mean, what you're basically saying is that you love the, um, you know, the community banking model, the uh, the you know the cooperative banking model. Well, you know, mm. that's the maybe that's you know. So I mean, we have made a trade off. We we have, have we have now bigger banks which have shareholder mm. bases with incentive structures yeah. around growth uh, that gives us more stability. Uh, you know, mm. it gives us a banking set which is strong or we can have small banks which you know, might you know many of them might fail under crises or under pressure because you know the community that they're serving um, yeah. you know is under pressure for whatever reason uh, so uh, yeah. it's I think that's the thing uh, I don't want to go too far to criticize them I, I think sure, um, sure. It, it, I think it's here's if I have to criticize a group I'd say it's the shareholder base that expects a certain behavior and expects certain things you know the shareholder base that expects Mm-hmm. X amount of franking and X amount of dividends and X amount of growth every year. Yeah. That's probably the problem, right? It's, yeah. it's you know, the, the shareholder base basically expects um, teens growth out of stuff that you're not supposed to get teens growth, right? I mean, I think that's the thing. So I don't want to criticize them for, you know, I mean, they're trying. And, and they've been like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think to the, to the point I'll say that they've been fantastic in this pandemic, right? So I want to give them credit for taking that on um, during mm-hmm. the pandemic. So, you know, they've been helpful to people deferring loans. They've been helpful to businesses deferring loans. Um, it's tough for them. So, mm. yeah, I'm not going to, ban- you know, I might sound, you know, I'm becoming a bank investor or something, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying the other side and saying, well, you know, those, <laughs> they have very little options on table and they're doing whatever they can with those options. So it could be that this is window dressing as to your point, uh, but I'm just, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll cast that uh, that vote uh, maybe next year. Fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, uh, I, I'm going to go and have coffee. Uh, you, you've, you've told me you want to talk about property. Give me three separate links from the AFR. Stories from two, one from yesterday, two from today. You, you've, lo- you've loaded the can. And I reckon I could probably go go for coffee, go for a wander outside, maybe make myself some, some sandwich or something, come back and I'll be at halfway through your rant. Is that, is that what's going to happen here? No, no. I'm going to keep, keep it really short. I, I thought, the, you know, there's, there's interesting things there, right? So there's the stimulus for construction, which is, you know, again, rightfully there to help an important industry to, um, again, I'm not making this, a, you know, a political comment or anything. I'm just saying that it's yep. a stimulus that we, you know, I think w- whether you agree with uh, the underlying principles, I think the stimulus helps that particular industry. So that's good. But there's always the flip side of that, which is, you know, well, if you help construction of new homes, it, it puts pressure on other <laughs> other things you create yeah, it creates right. contrary to what we're doing it creates supply when you don't need supply uh which actually yeah. might push prices down further right so there's that there's that aspect mm, um mm. Uh, to consider so I say very quickly too mate i i think i'm oh, sorry i think i'm gonna move on to another topic i'm just gonna say very quickly the Again, without being political, I think this construction support is actually a woeful program. I've been critical about some stuff, including the $10,000 super withdrawal. This is another one. The amount of money they're putting into this is something like, it's something stupid, you know, $340 million or something, and the government's saying hundreds of thousands of dollars will be supported. If you do the math, that's 340 bucks a job. Now, I don't know about you, but if, you know, if, if I could save my own job for 340 bucks, I'd happily give it to the boss, say, boss, keep me on for another year, here's 340 bucks if you guarantee me my job. Um, again, I don't want to be too critical because I know the government's trying to do lots of things. Um, and again, the general response has been excellent. This particular policy seems to me a bit of a fig leaf token or effort of, well, we're doing something to help construction that really, I mean, it, it, you know, it almost it almost can't, by definition, by sheer size, have enough of an impact. I mean, on the margin, maybe, and that's probably still worth something. But man, it's a it's a pretty, I mean, in the context of the other, other money that's been handed out, it's a pretty small amount of money, isn't it? Okay, yeah. So that, there's that. <laughs> so maybe it's smaller on money and, and has little to so no. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you keep ranting. Sorry, yeah. I was different. Well, so no, no, no. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really ranting. I'm just saying that, you know, there, know there's, things. Know. there's this, this, this construction thing going on. So there's contraction and home loans that was talked about. Again, not surprising. I mean, um, in um, April or, you know, early April or May, I mean, we, construct, uh, contraction of home loans makes sense. And, and then rent discounting again is, is kind of an obvious thing that's going on largely because you know if, if people um, if people if don't have the, their jobs and they therefore can't pay their rent therefore they might decide to move in or maybe share that that puts pressures on the on the rental market um, Airbnbs for example have been you know under pressure for a while because again no tourists right uh, and, and no tourism even local tourism right so so those are the things I think are interesting. Um, what does it mean? Again, you know, property market is um, is one aspect of it, but a lot of jobs tied in here. Uh, you know, whether it is for the landlords, or the for the uh, for the real estate agents, or for the construction people, or for the tiler, or for the mm-hmm. you know the plumber and things like that. So there's there's still stuff that um, is, I think, you know, in the flux in in my view, uh, while still moving in in sort of in the right direction. So. That, that's mm-hmm. a, not, no, I didn't want to um, rant about property prices. No, fair. No, no, fair. I like it. I like it. I like it. Um, overall, how are you feeling about property now, mate? You've been bearish for a little while. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and someone was saying the difference between now and 2008-9 is that then there was, and your point about uh, construction, by the way, is taken, but then there was a surplus of supply, and the lack of demand simply sent prices through the floor. What I heard over the, oh, was the last couple of days, whenever it was, I listened to this particular podcast, is that there is no supply glut in the same way there was. And so that's helping to stop prices falling. Now, maybe that's a Pollyanna view. Maybe that's a, uh, someone else's biased view. What's your thought now on where we sit, given the recovery in the economy or potential recovery, where do you feel like property prices are headed? Well, I, I still feel that they're headed down. Largely, and my, okay. my view is based on, I think a big supporter for property prices, you know, whether people like it or not, mm-hmm. is basically immigration intake, right? You bring new people in, mm-hmm. they bring mm-hmm. not just skills, but also their money. <laughs> the, those people mm-hmm. need places to live. And, you know, that is, it's basically a wealth transfer that has been going on, right? You have, you have, you have investors and you have new people come in from different parts of the world, bringing their money, transferring their wealth mm-hmm. to existing people in, in, in Australia, right? And that, that has been going on. And I think with property, things like property, where there's a lot of... Um, I guess leverage uh, a little bit here, a little bit there actually makes a big difference. Um, mm. and, and the same thing, I think, with you know the you know properties that have been on you know for Airbnbs, for example, if you don't have those ten million mm. international visitors, 
you do have a problem with those Airbnb properties, right? So that's what I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't know much. You know, maybe there is a supply demand balance that's going on, so maybe they don't don't fall. The other thing is that you know, the, it's it's a it's an interesting market. It's not a liquid market, right? So. Um, mm-hmm. My own anecdotal experience is that, you know, at, at certain places, the property prices have pulled back a lot. Uh, certain places, are, yeah. you know, based on the listing prices and certain places they have not. Um, and uh, again, the other thing that I don't know what happens, this is really hard to predict, right? Um, and, and thank God I'm not a property investor for that reason, is <laughs> is, is, is what happens um, when the job keeper support disappears. Because really, that's when we get to know you know the really yeah, ill businesses exactly. versus the not ill businesses, right? Um, yeah. um, the one thing I, you know, there's this talk of yeah. So I think I think again, the job keeper has done a fantastic job. Um, I think yeah. the question really is what happens post. And again, I don't disagree with the fact that it needs to be taken off at some point or the other, right? I mean, you can't really have um, you can't really have an ICU patient type of situation forever being fed some. No, uh, exactly. That's right. So, so it's just not possible. So, uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that idea. I just, I just think that you know that would that's the point at which you get to know what's really going to happen, and so again. Yeah. The, you know, fingers crossed. Maybe things are going to be better than you know than otherwise would have been projected. That's what I think the Treasury is saying. Things are better than they would they had projected. But you know, projections are projections, mm. right? So, anyways, yeah, that's what I think about. <laughs> yeah, interesting. You're not buying yet. Put it that way. Well, like I mean, you know, like I'm, I might buy for myself, right? Here's the thing, right? I might buy for myself, but you know, yeah. uh, I'm not a property yeah. investor. I don't invest in that sector largely sure, because sure, sure. I, <laughs> I, I just don't like the the extended leverage and the illiquidity yeah. of the market. That's my thing. Can't argue with that, mate. Can't argue with that. All right. Um, I think, like in terms of in terms of the unusual, unexpected things, I had not a single clue that Harvey Norman. Jerry Harvey, who's regularly dismissed as a dinosaur and someone who's out of touch, no idea. Sales at Harvey Norman were up 17% between January and June. Now, they didn't close, so it's something they pick up some market share and there's other reasons, but could you, I, I, what odds would you have given me if I'd have asked you three days ago, you know, what odds would you give me if Harvey Norman sales growth be more than 15%? Because I've got to say, I would have given you maybe five to one, six to one at the minimum. I, maybe up five, maybe up ten percent. White good sales, okay, great. Seventeen percent, one dollar in six, an increase. I wouldn't that have said blew me away. I wouldn't have said seventeen percent, but I would have. I would have guessed pretty solid growth, largely because there's been so much. Mm. You, you, you know, the funny thing with stimulus is, right? You know, there's stimulus to spend because um, you know your business is being given stimulus to spend. You know, for you know, so that yeah. things can be written off. You, you can buy home office equipment, for example, right? I mean, people yeah. use the stimulus opportunity to buy stuff that Harvey Norman sells, right? So, yeah. work from home um, has benefited. Harvey Norman immensely, right? Whether it's selling computers or, you know, selling hardware for, you know, uh, headphones or selling, you know, um, networking gear or selling office tables and chairs, you know, maybe an office fridge or whatnot, right? So I I think they've benefited from it. So I I wouldn't have guessed 17%. I would have said some growth. Um, right, right, right. It's solid, good for them, but you know, I tell people be careful. This is uh, this is an unrepeatable <laughs> feat, in my opinion. Well, that, yeah, no, I agree. And that's gonna be look. I, I, there's many, many, many bigger problems in in the in the world, uh, in the health in health policy, in public policy, in economics, in finance, in investing than this one. Mm. But I'll tell you what, they have, the coronavirus has made our jobs half the next eighteen months, mate. Like when you try to look at year on year growth. You kind of got to, as you, a bit like the US economy itself, you kind of got to go, okay, well, let's take 2019, let's take coming off for 2020, but it's only part of 2020, and then growth's going to be great in that year for some people, and then terrible next year. Other people who had a terrible year, like, a, as you said, the flight retailers, for example, are going to have some sort of growth next year. I mean, trying to, trying to work out what of this is sustainable, what's underlying, what's one-off, it's going to make our lives difficult for, I mean, no one's complaining, no, one, no one's, no one's uh, crying for us. But it does, it's going to make things really messy for about 18 months, trying to work out, maybe that's where we earn our money, but trying to work out what is what, what's organic, what's real, what's ongoing, what's one-off. It's going to be hard work. You know, there's there's a brand new, like, you know, there's a hot, hot of the press. So JB Hi-Fi expects its net profits to rise 20%. 
20 percent um, yeah. this year despite a 25 million dollar write-off uh, for a struggling NZ business right so I mean you know again none of these things would be you know uh, it's the yeah it's the normalized profits over the long term is what I'm, I'm interested in so uh, yeah again wouldn't have predicted it couldn't have predicted it is it repeatable I doubt some of that is definitely not repeatable so yeah. I think that's right. I, I will say for what it's worth, mate, some of the stuff that people bought, I mean, if you bought an extra chest freezer, for example, is it repeatable? No, but it's also probably, at least in some part of it, it's, uh, it's spend that wasn't just bought forward, right? There's extra spend in some of these cases, people who bought new extra stuff they wouldn't have otherwise bought. So at least it's not pulling forward much in the way of sales. But as you say, you can't expect. I mean, you know, you're not going to sell that many chest freezers next year. You're going to have some sort of sales decline in the first half, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I, well, as I said, it's basically stimulus spending, right? You know, government is saying, I'm going to yeah. write off the tax for that for you. Uh, you know, you don't have to depreciate it over three years. You know, you can write it off now. That causes urges in people to buy stuff that don't, they probably even mm. don't need, right? Uh, <laughs> consumerism is like that. You know, you, you know, if somebody told you you can buy that for 30% off because you don't have to pay tax on it now, uh, you, get to write, you, you get to write it off. You know, that causes, it is human behavior and, and, and yeah, uh, you know, stimulus is, meant to tap into human behavior yeah so not repeatable probably going to be a decline next year but what do I know Mm, now mate um, one of the absolute highlight stocks of the last month and a half has been a company you know and like a company I know and am more ambivalent on much to my absolute cost I do have one particular uh, friend on Facebook, on Twitter who is trolling me about this company. It is Afterpay, which had an all-time record of $54.52 on Wednesday. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal story. We did talk about it last week, so we didn't necessarily do too much on it. But this is just, this. <laughs> i got to say, so I'm just pulling up the chart now. This was a $9 stock on the 23rd of March. It's now a $54 stock. That's a six-fold increase, just short of when you round the cents up. In what, a month and a half? I mean, two and a half months? This is just, uh, I am I am flabbergasted. And I still can't yet find it in my brain to believe the company is genuinely worth a quarter more than it was before the pandemic. I, I, again, maybe I'm just stupid, but I, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal juggernaut. I've got to ask you, mate, at 54 bucks, are you any closer to maybe hitting the hold or the sell button? Um, well, you know, it's... So here's the thing, right? The the problem with valuing disruptive ideas is it's <laughs> yeah. it's um, how do you value the optionality? How do you value the growth? Mm-hmm. How do you value it relative to TAM? Um, you know, one could make so an TAM argument. Being, well, the total addressable market, right? I mean, the total addressable right. market for this thing. This is a, there's been a success story in Australia, New Zealand, right? And, and you take the same model, it's a relatively, you know, light model if you think, well, okay, that is, you know, it has to carry uh, debt that is basically recycling um, uh, mm. over the consumers, right? So it, it, it you know, mm. it's based, it, has, it has to have debt facility, which it's, it's going to use to lend out money, but it's going to be able to, you know, recycle that lending across a large number of customers over a period of time. Mm. So there's, the optionality comes from the fact that it, it, it is expanding in the world's largest consumer market, right? Uh, mm. That being the US. Uh, it's expanding in the UK, which is again, uh, substantially larger than our market. So, uh, it's it's one of those things where I think there's gonna be a lot of swings between you know mm. pessimism and optimism and, um, but, you know, the, the question really in my mind would be, what is the size of this business going to be in five years' time, right? I mean, where is this business likely to be in five years' time? Now, here's one way to frame it. If it could be anywhere near, say, an American Express, right, Mm. then there's multifold increase still in it, right? You know, um, if if it can get anywhere close there, maybe it gets acquired before that, I don't know, right? so that's that. That's the thing, right? I mean, um, American Express is is an eighty five billion US company, right? So mm, mm. that's like you know north of hundred billion hundred billion dollars in Australian market cap. Mm. So if you think if you compare mm. that with um, you know Afterpay, Afterpay is relatively small. Now you know, um, so you know Afterpay is like at a fourteen billion dollar company. So you know you could say that there is you know potentially a five six you know seven bagger here. Potentially. Potential, um, it, yeah. So, 
I think it, this, this is a hard one. This is a hard one because it's really hard mm. to. Uh, it's really hard for disruptive ideas and disruptive um, potential in you know, companies which are first movers to sort of delineate that aspect. That's, that's mm. so. Mm-hmm. So I can see why it swings around a fair bit, and I do expect it to swing right. um, going forward. Mm-hmm. But you're still happy to kind of give it that rope to see if it can be the next American Express or similar. So, so the way I think about this is, for these type of companies, right? You know, you you start with a small allocation. That's what we recommended at, um, you know, in in Motlifold Pro when we introduced it. Mm. And ideally, you want to, you know, if you make a small allocation and you know you let it run, it can run, run, run. And if it ten bags, you know, a small allocation would be enough, right? Um, mm, mm. At some point, if you think that your allocation to that company has become overweight, uh, it, you know, it's, it's you know, so if you, if, if, you inve- if you invest a little bit more than small and it turned out to be this is now your largest allocation and, you know, you're uncomfortable about it, um, then you've got to consider it. That's the way I think about these things is um, with many of these disruptive ideas, it's, it's, you can fret about it a lot. So if you if you're fretting about it, then you need to consider your allocation. Mm. But if it's, if it's a decent size allocation, and you know you don't you're not really too worried about it, that's okay to continue holding, right? Um, mm. So that's that's how I look at it. look at any such a, such disruptive idea. And, and you know I, I would say that this is by far uh, Afterpay probably is one of the most disruptive ideas that has come. You know, been listed on the ASX. It, you know, last maybe five, six, maybe even ten years, right? So. Um, and and disruptive ideas cause a lot of divide. You know, there are people there are people who want to love it, people who want to hate it. Um, it has taken me a long time to sort of appreciate what uh, what what they're doing, right? And then and I've been very skeptical mm-hmm. about it. And you know, I think that cost me some money uh, being skeptical. And and again, that I think is very normal, right? So for, <laughs> certainly for cost me, me some money. Yes, well, for it's, sure. well, it's cost me money too. <laughs> like you know, so, so so our colleague Ryan uh, Newman. He f- proposed that you know we introduce this to Pro, and we had a lot of debate to it. And mm. he, you know, he persisted and explained to me why he thinks this is a disruptive idea, and 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 mm. and, and then you know sort of I came around to sort of you know taking his view and yeah okay it makes sense what he's saying. Um, you know we did valuation work mm. on it to sort of you know f- come up with some ballpark valuations that we think um, make sense, and and we thought how hey, this is okay this potentially even undervalued at that point we decided to buy. So. Um, so that's the thing. I, I, I think again, I like I like this sort of idea, and I like to be supportive. Again, when I say supportive, I'm supportive of general business ideas that are disruptive because I think that's good. Uh, we need more of them. Um, so yeah, uh, again, but I fully expect, as I said, a lot of volatility with afterpay. So you know, it didn't surprise me that it went to ten bucks. It doesn't surprise me that it's gone to fifty bucks. Um, and it doesn't surprise me if it can go back to twenty five bucks, and it wouldn't surprise me if it went to seventy five bucks. <laughs> All right, uh, let's let's move on, mate. We got a little bit of time left. We got time for a question, and yes, of course, we will have a Sunday mailbag episode. Let's let's not uh, let's not bury that one just yet. Before we do dip into the full mailbag, mate, I want to tell people about how they can join another one of your services, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Now, Extreme Opportunities is a business that looks for these sort of disruptive ideas. Um, I don't think after has a recommendation at EO, but you've got plenty of wonderful businesses. Last time I checked the scorecard, you guys are doing a spectacular job of beating the market. Um, it's been a tough old volatile time, and I, I fair to say EO's probably been more volatile than the average portfolio, certainly the average Motley Fool service, but that's to be expected. In fact, that's exactly how you run the service, aiming for long-term outperformance and big winners. That's a really, really wonderful way, I think, to invest, and you and Kevin are particularly great at doing exactly that. So, Fools, if you want to join Doc at EO, and I think you should, you can go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast, pretty straightforward. EO is extreme opportunities, of course. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Get a special deal. I say every time I mention it, it is just stupidly cheap. I don't know how you could, if you've got a decent portfolio of any size, I don't know how you couldn't least at least spend the money to have a look at EO, right? If you hate it after a year, well, so be it. You've dusted less than a hundred bucks and you've had hopefully some good ideas and some good education. If you get one good idea out of it, two, three, four good ideas, man, it's just cheap as chips, particularly if you've got a decent portfolio, as I said. So I would recommend EO, no guarantees, of course, about either part of future performance or the way the business will operate that service. But I think it's a pretty good deal and a very, very attractive, great value for money opportunity. Just get some more insight, get some more content, get some more research, some more recommendations. So full 
www.mailbag.com.au forward slash EO podcast. All right, Doc, let's move into the mailbag. We've got probably time for one question, I reckon. This one comes from Sparky, and it comes on Twitter. Sparky says, hey, Scott and Doc, I listen to your podcast religiously since the start of last year. Bless you, my son. And I have learned a lot. I enjoyed the valuation of the stocks example and how Doc explained why Webjet would be a good pick in the travel sector. After all, you're not giving stock advice, but how you value it. So I went to my own research as it was in my circle of competence. He says, my question is bonds. He says, now maybe have James Bond music play in the background. Our budget doesn't stretch that far, Sparky. So uh, we can't do that. But uh, if you want to hum the James Bond theme, Doc, feel free. What, <laughs> what, are bond, what are bonds? There are government and public bonds, I believe. Which one is preferred? What is a yield? When should you buy it? Lots of questions there. Also, gold. He says, maybe have Goldfinger music playing. <laughs> He's got the very, very James Bond thing going on. Why do people buy gold? When is it a good time to buy? And how can I buy it? Do you buy all these things through your broker account? Or something like Self-Wealth or Comsec? Cheers, Sparky. I made lots of content there. We talked about bonds a little bit in the past. Let's do a really quick redux, mate. What's a bond? Yeah, so so bond is basically a, a debt instrument, right? A, issued right. by a company or or a government with a promise to mm-hmm. pay back. Um, a, a bond sits. You, you become the lender, right? You're you're lending money to a company, yeah. and rather than rather you know it, it, rather when the bank lends you money, it calls it a mortgage. When you lend money to a company or a government, it's called a bond. Bond, right? And it comes out. So government makes a promise that says, "I'm going to give you money back plus some interest on it." Um, government might pay interest, you know, a half yearly or a yearly, or maybe at the maturity of the bond. It depends on the type of the bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, uh, governments don't give you any security as such. You just have the security that the government is going to pay you back. Um, and depending upon how much you, how much people, investors trust the government. Mm-hmm. You know, if you trust them more, you you typically pay lower. You get lower interest rate. If you don't trust yeah, them as right. much, you get higher, <laughs> higher interest rate. Uh, it's called coupon in in, in some part of the uh, p- parts of the world. Or some yep. parts, or some in, in 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 some jargon. If you're interested in the jargon, mm-hmm. uh, companies then, <laughs> in, from a company point of view, um, bonds would sit higher in sort of the the pecking order versus uh, like this uh, like equity holding. So uh, when a company issues a bond, basically if the company goes bankrupt, uh, bondholders would come first in terms of being able to recover some of that money that is being owed to them via sale of assets. Mm-hmm. Right, mm. um, so the company is sold, or its assets are sold. You know, bondholders. So there's some security in that form versus um, versus a shareholder where you don't have the security. Shareholders get to participate in the the upside from the stock or you know dividends from the from the profits. Uh, bondholders don't get that. Bondholders get a fixed um, you know predetermined interest, um, and that's really it. So bonds are a way to earn. I guess bonds, are, you know, the best way to think about bonds is bonds are like a term deposit to some extent. You get mm. a known, yeah, interest, right. known interest rate, uh, but it comes with, depending on the bond, <laughs> higher or lower um, risk, right? So, you know, so I'd say, you know, higher risk if it's a company bond, lower risk if it's a government bond, because that would, in my view, be mm. even better than, say, bank uh, bank deposit. Of course, bank deposits in most countries are protected by, um, you know, government insurances, insurance schemes. So, so I mean, you know, you could almost think of a bank deposit as, as a government bond. At least in countries where there is there is a you know a deposit insurance scheme. Mm-mm-mm. That's uh, really. Are you going to buy bonds anytime soon? No. <laughs> in the current interest rate environment, bonds make no sense. As I said, you know, in the beginning of the podcast, I heard, I forgot the number, but Amazon was Amazon issued a bond at pretty much like close yeah, to zero. Right. So people are lending money to Amazon uh, and saying, I need you to pay me no interest. Now, I don't know why that really happens. I have still not figured that out. Um, because why would anybody lend money to someone and say, I don't want any interest. I just want my money back from you. Um no, it's, it's pretty bizarre. So as good as keeping your money. I guess you can't keep lots of money. If you've got lots and lots of money, you can't keep it under the mattress. <laughs> and maybe people feel better about giving it to Amazon than giving it to, I don't know, a bank or, or some locker mm-hmm. or some vault. So I, I mm-hmm. really don't know how that works. But yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Fascinating. All right. And buying bonds. Mate, I've never bought a bond. I don't think you have either. What's the way? How do you do it? Well, you see, you should be able to buy bonds through a typical, well, okay, I shouldn't say typical broker. So I do know that I can Mm. buy um, bonds uh, 
via the platform side. Like, you know, you could, like, I have Charles Schwab account in the U.S. and you can buy access bonds there. It it is Mm -hmm. a secondary, you are just like the stock market, it's a secondary market for bonds that you're accessing via those platforms. I don't know whether Comsec supports that or not, maybe it does, but you should be able to access the secondary market for bonds. Um, The primary market for bonds, I think you have to place bids. So you, you I think that is out of the out of bounds for I guess for most retail investors. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't realize they're, they're exchange traded. Apparently, you can buy some Australian government bonds at least on the ASX, which I had no idea. So that was kind of cool. Okay, uh, cool. ETF ETF style bond or ETB or something. Anyway, lots of fun. My gold. I'll start on that one, and I'll give you a breast, and you can jump in. Um, why do people buy gold? So the answer, Sparky, is a whole lot of different reasons, as you would expect across the board. Um, it's traditionally been seen as a safe asset in the sense that it is a physical thing, unlike shares, which are kind of this paper thing. Now, I think that's a misnomer, by the way, because the paper thing represents ownership of real business. So I think it's a massive misnomer when people talk about it. But people see gold as a real thing they can hold, they can put it in a safe, they can bury it, they can do whatever they want with it, depending on how paranoid you are. Um, so, you know, they buy it because they're a real thing. You can carry it around. You know how much gold you've always got. Gold can't go bankrupt. Um, you know, that's that's kind of some some value there for those people who see that. Um, gold has also traditionally been seen as a hedge against inflation. Now, we've already been talking about that today. I don't think it's likely to be necessary anytime soon. But that can often be somewhere to go. And in, the, in a market when the shares are falling... It tends to be this go-to asset, this sort of flight to safety people talk about, which again, I think is more market convention than actual truth. You already can tell from my comments, Sparky, I'm not a big fan of the idea. Uh, I see no reason why, you know, when the market's falling, why gold's better than cash, for example, or anything else. It does go up normally when markets go down, but it kind of does because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Everyone thinks it will, so everyone buys it, so it does. Um, That's a little bit, you know, useless from a a long-term investing perspective. So that's why people do it. Um, if you, when is it a good time to buy gold? I'd say never. Uh, I'm being a little bit <laughs> facetious here, but I think it's a terrible investment asset. I wouldn't buy any. I don't own any. I wouldn't buy any. I see no reason to have any other than some volatility kind of dampening, um, simply because shares and gold tend to move in opposite directions. Now, again, if you're paying for that, you're paying insurance premium, which means you're lowering your overall returns. If all it gives you is volatility protection, but doesn't add to your returns, you're actually, by definition, getting a lower return. Now, that might be okay if that's what you want. So that's maybe why some people do it as well. Um, good. If you're going to do it, the time to buy it is when the gold price is very, very low and near the cost of production. Now, again, I'm not saying people should do this. I don't, I don't think you should. To be really, really super clear. If you're going to buy gold, though, yeah, buying it now when everyone's already buying, when everyone's piled in because the market's been on, you know, has been down, is probably a terrible time in all likelihood. No, no predictions because we don't do that. I certainly don't do that. Um, but the time to buy it is when, when so let's say it costs you 1200 bucks to get gold out of the ground. If you can buy it for 1250 or $1,300 an ounce, this is, um, then you know the, the chance of it fall, falling meaningfully below the cost of production for any extended period of time is really, really low because if it does, miners stop producing it, the amount of gold demand continues to increase, the supply is limited, and so it should push prices up. And again, that's over time, no guarantees, but generally speaking, that's a decent basis for any commodity if you want to play that game, and I don't think you should, but if you do... Um, Otherwise, I think any time that the gold price is meaningfully above the cost of, of mining it means that there's just a whole lot of expectation, speculation, and frankly, it's very, very hard to understand the investment case at those points. Buying gold, you can go through uh, Perth Mint or other mobs who do that. There's plenty of gold brokers around, again, whether you want to buy physical gold. You can also buy exchange-traded funds that have gold, physical gold as their holding, so you can buy and sell you know, exposure to it on the ASX. But for most people who, who have gold, they kind of have it because they want the physical thing. Uh, so they generally tend to prefer the actual stuff. Um, some, some, some companies actually give you literal title. So you will own a specific piece of gold in a specific safe or vault, for example. Um, so that's, that's how you can do it. Again, I think it's a terrible idea. I wouldn't do it. Warren Buffett agrees with me for what it's worth. Even Doc agrees with me. And Warren Buffett and Doc agree where we know things are, I don't know, maybe, maybe look through the looking glass. Actually, I shouldn't assume you agree with me, Doc. I just assume you do, but... Tell us, is Buffett right? Am I right? Or are we getting something wrong? About gold? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's right. Not, not in general. I'm getting plenty of stuff wrong in general. <laughs> uh, no, I, th- I think he's right about gold. I think there's, you know, I agree. Not, not that Very my good. opinion counts, but I agree. <laughs> Nothing else to say? No. Of course it does, mate. Of course that's what you're here for, mate. <laughs> your, opinion, your opinion counts greatly. All right. Hmm. Fools, that almost wraps us up. But... We are going to answer more questions on Sunday. And if you want your question answered in a future podcast, the best way, in fact, the only way to do it 
is to use one of the following methods. Now, if you're on Twitter, and I think you should be because Twitter's just fun, um, I want you to jump onto Twitter and follow at Anirban Mahanti. That is the good doctor's Twitter handle. I'm at TMF Scott P. And the Motley Fool is at the Motley Fool AU. So that's Twitter. On Instagram, you can't find Doc, but you can find the Motley Fool, and you can find me at those same handles at the Motley Fool AU on Instagram at TMF Scott P. I've got to say, mate, I don't do a lot of Instagramming. I just I, I can't quite look. I'm an investor, right? The chance of me having a great photo of my day, really, really low. If I was, if I was a you know a personal fitness guru or a, a rock star or a TV personality, there'd be lots of interesting things to do. People don't want to see me taking photos of my spreadsheets. It's not much fun. But I am there. And, and it's also our most interactive platform, despite many, many fewer followers on Insta. So if you're not there already, jump on Insta and follow us. You can get us on Facebook. I'm at Scott Phillips Money. The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool Australia. And of course, if you want to keep it old school, info at fool.com.au is how you can get in touch with us. And with that all said, we're done. We will be back on Sunday, but in the meantime, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or, here's a new one, the Podcast One app on your phone. We're now part of the Podcast One network, as I'm sure you're aware by now. You can go to Podcast One on your phone, download the app, whether you're on any device, and get all of our podcasts right there. I even get an alert now, mate, when the podcasts turn up on my phone, which is kind of cool. You, know, you, have a new, you have a new podcast from Motley Full Money on your feed. So that's kind of cool. So Podcast One, check that out. If you like what we're doing, as always, please give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends, shout it from the rooftops, tattoo it on your body if you so choose, though I won't be responsible for anything you do when you're drunk. And of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and a little offer to join Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.